Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. Hello, folks. Welcome back. This is Paul here, your show host at large for the Notion Capital Go-To-Market podcast. I'm here in a rather rainy London. Oh, surprise. <laughs> I'm with Andy, as always. I think he's not in London today because I got used to his camera background, so I suspect he's near his computer museum again. <laughs> You've now gotten used to me asking him a question at the beginning of every show. And to be frank, those are also for me to get to know him. It's really fun. And through those questions, we've all learned that Andy is full of surprises. So talking of surprises, he threw me two to me the other day. First, that's great news. He added extra episode to the season. So I'm so glad we're going to hang out even more than I thought we would be because I love doing this with him. And second, he actually <laughs> altered the sequence of episodes. So <laughs> all my list of questions that I carefully crafted in advance in chronological order is in total disarray. But don't worry, Andy, I love it. I, I thrive in discomfort. <laughs> so I love it more than anything. So on the theme of surprises, Andy, that's your question. Did you plan your career the way it went? Was it designed or was it more like, well, full of surprises? Well, Paul, actually, you spring these questions on me every week, okay? But I'm going to ask you a question. Go ahead. Yeah, because I never ask you any questions. I'm going to ask you a question. So here we go. I noticed the other day, so during lockdown, this guy, Tim Burgess, who was the lead singer with the Charlatans, did these Twitter listening mm -hmm. parties. I don't know if you saw them, where everybody put the needle on the record at the same time. And then the artist tweeted about the record and memories and the track and things like that. The standout number one by far was Iron Maiden. Okay. And you're a metal guy. So I've got to ask you, what is the appeal of Iron Maiden? Because I'm not, I, I don't oh know my. that stuff. So tell me. <laughs> my God. I could go on for one hour. So I'll keep it. It's my favorite band. I grew up with them. I mean, of course, late. That was my first album, cassette, you know, a cassette. And well, f from a cassette to today, it's, it's a band that scales like softer. <laughs> It worked out when you're young and you don't want to listen to the same stuff as your parents. You kind of hope the cover art horrifies them. And then you grow along and you found out that the lyrics are cooler than you thought. And they kept releasing albums. Some of the most successful actually were in the past decade, not in the 80s. They were never in fashion, thus can never be out of fashion. <laughs> they never had any airplay, radio airplay. They kept playing live to massive audiences, 200,000 plus and smaller too all around the world. Always playing the latest albums, not living on nostalgia doing their thing. They're like founders, you know, they had a plan and they are still laser focused on that plan and having fun along the way. So you end up being in concerts surrounded with people in their late 60s, in their 40s, like me and teenagers who just discovered them. Actually, my best friend here brings his daughter, hi Alison, with us. Uh, and since she was, what, eight? <laughs> and you see bankers still in suits and old rockers. It's, it's a communion, really a communion, the life performances are like a communion. We're singing along and we're having fun and they're having fun. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's like that friend, you know, that Andy, that, that grew old with you and at times you saw him less, but every time you do, it feels like yesterday and you're happy. I don't know. <laughs> Probably defines a lot of long-lasting bands, actually. <laughs> Honestly, that's about it. It's, it's It just speaks to me. Man, you caught me. I don't know how to describe feelings about music, but yeah, it's um, I've seen them 20... X time something, so it's cool. 20 plus times. I'm already really? booked for Donington next year, 2022. Hoping, let's come on, touch wood, that it will actually happen. 
Very good. So, Very good. But it's like all of all of us, we have like passions. I know that our guest today, I think he has a passion for golf. Maybe we'll get to that or not. <laughs> I golf. <laughs> so you have an answer, Andy. Just tell me yes or no. Was it designed? The short answer, there's three parts of my career. The first part was I really, really wanted to understand how business works and loved my time with GE, for instance, because they had their own university. I did my MBA with them, loved it. They were the biggest company in the world at the time. But when I discovered the startup world, that was it. I didn't want to work for a big company again. I knew how they work, but I didn't want to work for that big company. Every company I work for, I found them. Okay, So if you look at the number of times I get approached by recruiters versus the number of times that they actually managed to go and get me to an interview, it's probably single digits because I always wanted to be in control of my own destiny. And the third part of my career, or Act 3, is around venture. And I actually think the venture part is giving back in a lot of instances. You know, the operating role is to give back to the companies and say, this is what I learned. I don't think I've got the blueprint for your business, but I can tell you what doesn't work and kind of what was painful for me. So it's very much design, I would wow. say. I wasn't expecting that, actually. Wow, see? And uh, since you just asked me about Iron Maiden, you know, uh, for the only metal guy in the room, I'm the only one without hair, which makes no sense. So introduce us, Andy, to our hero of the day, who has, I would say, better hair than you have, Andy. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Arguably, right? (laughs) So please introduce us to our hero of the day, Andy. (laughs) Yes, so I'm super pleased. Today we got Pat, Patrick Phelan, joining us. Pat is someone that I've known for a number of years. We've randomly bumped into each other in previous years in airports. 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 Yeah, yeah, Yeah. You always say that, Andy. You meet every single one of our guests at airports. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, the last time I flew was February 2020, so I haven't seen anyone in an airport for a long time. So I think Pat's going to try and be modest, so I'm going to big him up a little bit in in his bio here, okay? So I've gone to LinkedIn. I've had a look. He started, and I'm going to ask him a little bit about this in a second. He started in marketing and sales in Dubai. Mm. That's interesting stat number one. Then he went to Taleo. You know, hey, I was at Success Factors, and I think you were at Taleo at the same time. So we're kind of yep. moving in similar yep. circles there. Bizarre Voice, where we had the chance to work together and met each other. Brandwatch, where you first got the title, I think, of Chief Customer Officer, CCO, which yeah. I, I kind of want to pick on a little bit later. And now we're, you're the CCO at Go Cardless. So, Pat, yep. welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Andy. No worries. I want to dig in a little bit. Let's wind all the way back. So what was the <laughs> Dubai thing? What happened there? <laughs> I, I found it quite interesting, the first question that Paul has just asked you. I was kind of hoping we wouldn't go down that path with me because it's many and varied in terms of how, how I got to this point. Yeah, Dubai was an interesting one for me. So I, I did the pretty standard path of, you know, university I was a pretty okay, you know, student at school, fairly disciplined, not, not, you know, crazy academic, but enough to, I kind of phrase my academic life as I knew how to just do enough to go under the radar and not uh, cause any problems for myself or my parents at the time, who uh, obviously were very kindly funding me through that process. And I just wanted to get the hell out of Ireland. I'm proudly Irish, always will be. But when I look back to Ireland in, gosh, probably the mid to late 80s, it's unrecognizable to what it is now. And even even what it was 10 years ago. And when I did my postgrad, you know, the time had come to get a job. And I got this random call from a company in Galway, in the wild west of Galway. It wasn't even Galway City. It was further west. They made handmade Irish carpets. And I didn't know what they were, nor did I really care what they were. All I cared about was the job was in Dubai. And I took it. (laughs) When I think about the due diligence, oh my God. So I rocked up to Dubai for about a year and a half. And the goal was to set up a a presence in Dubai. 
So there was nothing there. We just found at the time that the carpets were selling, they were selling well. And uh, Tony, who was the CEO at the time and a phenomenal character, figured, you know, let's do it. And he moved his family as well as myself and one other fellow out to Dubai with them for the year. And yeah, we literally sold, you know, carpets to people in Dubai. I mean, it, it doesn't get a lot more cliched than that from an Irish perspective, does it? And I never really understood or appreciated uh, the irony of that at the time. But it was an unbelievable experience. And I don't know whether it was good or bad. It was just an experience. And it was one that I don't want to use the word survived, but man, it was hard. Like, like literally from having, I didn't have a bank. I wasn't legal there for six months, um, <laughs> which looking back now at the time was pretty risky. Like I was paid in cash. <laughs> it's crazy. So I did it for about 14 months. And, you know, then I realized it's not for me in terms of the location. And, and quite frankly, had it been a different type of role, maybe I'd still be there. But uh, I came back to London and that kind of uh, that got me more into, a, I guess, a more traditional path <laughs> in terms of my career. Wow. But I wouldn't I, I would never change it because I did 14 of what I would classify as the craziest, hardest wildly exciting months of my entire life thus far. So it obviously shaped a lot for me. <laughs> you use the word unrecognizable for Ireland, but that could also apply to Dubai. I'm not going to ask you when you yeah, were, but I've been yeah. working for decades there. And yeah, wow. to give you an example at the stage we were where we were, we quoted for the Burj at the time and we, we went on site to do a quote And it was a wow. building site. Literally, the, the shell of the hotel, the concrete was there. So that was the period we were in Dubai. So that, that was like the biggest thing at the time. But yeah, it was such an evolving part of the world. And yeah, you know, it's just, again, one of life's experiences. And sometimes you just got to grab it and see how it goes. And that's what I did. Wow. So how did you pivot into tech then? Did you come back to London and fall into it? Tech was an interesting one. No, no, I came back to London. I just wanted to work in a in a kind of a buzzy, fast-paced environment because, you know, my previous two years were quite quite independent. You know, it, it, there was a lot of self-work. And, you know, for a 23-year-old lad, that was like, you know, it's you kind of want to be around people and you want the buzz. And, and I came back to London and the first thing I did was just, I want, again, it shows again my, my approach to my, my work was very random. I didn't really care what the function was. It was more around the people. I wanted to work in a, in a very buzzy, big environment. So I started going to recruitment consultants to look for uh, you know, jobs as we do, and very quickly found that they started asking me about becoming one very quickly. And it was a career, again, I never even considered ever. Uh, never even knew it existed, quite frankly, as far as like a genuine career was concerned. But I, I came across a company called Robert Walters, and you know, I went in for an interview for a role through them, and then they hired me. And it ticked all my boxes. And again, phenomenal experience in there. But we got to a point where You know, after a year and a half, I wanted to, to try something different. And my friend at the time was a super smart guy from Ireland, best friend there too. We figured we'd just go and do something ourselves. So we started in website design, uh, which I knew nothing about. And he was reading a book about. And yeah, we, we slowly picked up customers and started to get into that world. We, we kind of expanded it into a little bit of bespoke software development. And, you know, again, I really liked your point earlier on about how you give back by telling people what doesn't work. You know, I spent basically six years of what I would classify as doing pretty much the wrong thing at the wrong time consistently. Uh, but we survived again. You know, we, we, we built up a, a little business. I mean, it wasn't by any stretch exhaustive. But again, so stunning experience for me. I mean, you know, I, I realized after that period, I'm a good right hand man. I'm a really good sort of person to support the person with the ideas and the risk appetite. And that's when I, I joined Verve at the time, because we kind of, we, we figured we'd taken it as, as far as we wanted to. And we were not really 
quite honestly, Andy, we were our hearts weren't fully into that side of the business. And that's where my technology journey started at Verve. And that started for me a sequence of phenomenally fortuitous career decisions. And you know, you you know yourself when we met and I left Verve to come on your journey at Bizarre Voice. And then from Bizarre Voice to Brandwatch and Brandwatch to Go Cardless. And yeah, I've been I've been so lucky from that point onwards. But I, I feel like it was in some way balancing my first <laughs> chapter. <laughs> you know, I, I think I was due some some really good luck at that point. <laughs> Fortunately, it happened. It was a random journey, really. I describe you to people that I meet as as a kind of ambassador of customer success. You know, you've lived this journey so many times and you've made some really good choices on companies where they've they've really invested yeah. in this as well. So was that what you wanted to do, customer success? Or again, was that an accident? How did that come about? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think as my career has evolved, I've become more comfortable acknowledging what I'm good at and leaning into that. I think early on in my career, I wish I'd done it sooner and I'd wish I'd kind of put my own, you know, again, not to sound arrogant about it, but there's certain things I know I do better than most other people. And I wish I'd acknowledge that and not just put that down to being, uh, quite honestly, from a cultural perspective, being, you know, where I'm from, being the fact that we can talk quite comfortably to people. We tend to work well with different personality types. We're pretty flexible. So from that point of view, I knew I was pretty good at as you know, engaging with a variety of different groups of people and engaging with, with different types of companies. And I think it naturally evolved from there. You know, I knew sales wasn't for me as in direct sales, because quite frankly, I know what it takes to carry a bag. And uh, I know, you know, where my strengths and weaknesses kind of coalesce there. But I knew I was a good farmer. I knew I could I could work what we would call, I guess, you know, warm opportunities and, and nurture them and, and build trust pretty quickly. And when I first joined Verve, there was no such role as customer success manager. There was no customer success wasn't a thing. If you go again, go back to your early success factor days, probably early kind of in that world, it was very much account management, which is where kind of I started. And it's just been really interesting to watch all of that evolve over time from the kind of the farming model into, you know, what it, I guess what it can be now. And, and there's multiple facets of it, but, but I knew that world was for me. I just didn't quite know how, you know, what it would play out because a lot of the roles that I was very successful in didn't exist when I started out. It sounds like you you kind of figured it out. And then how did you get trained? Who was the company or person or that really invested in you? That's something that's on my mind a lot at the moment as I think about sort of, you know, the next generation, if you like, of customer success managers. To, to answer your question, honestly, I didn't because in customer success and as it's evolved, what we do is so subjective and so fluid, depending on the kind of organization, the kind of software, the level of implementation, how difficult, how easy, the level of, of what the commercial structure is. Is it sort of B2C? Is it freemium? Is it, is it ACV? Is it committed? Where I struggle with the comparison to sales is like the software changes in sales, the value prop changes in sales, but there's fundamental principles that apply to a sales motion that you can have confidence in. That if you do those things really well and you're super trained in each level of those, take medic, for example, that you will get to an outcome or at least you'll know at what stage you're at. Customer success is so different because it can literally be 20 different things on any particular day from dealing with an escalation to an upsell to a, a product issue to a, like, and it's, it's ongoing, it's constant. So I think it's a big gap. And I think th the way I learned, honestly, is I always accepted that a, you've got to treat every customer individually. You can't necessarily apply emotion to a portfolio of sort of 15 customers because it doesn't work. 
you need to understand sort of what your parameters are, what your outcomes are. You need to understand what you're doing and the impact that what you do has on those outcomes. But more than anything else, you have to have the capability to pivot like rapidly and freely and be super comfortable with that. And I think as I kind of went through my my learning and customer success, I'm not saying I was self-taught necessarily, but the culture I was in taught me more than the actual individuals, let's say, that I worked with or that there was any particular structure around that. So if you look at, again, our experience at Bizarre Voice, you know, look at some of the deals that, you know, you were involved in early stage in a fairly nascent market where what we did was, it was new, right? It was, it, it was yeah. something that we had to create a problem as opposed to even solving a problem, you know, in some cases. And that was the beauty of it. I love that. And that, that's what excites me the most. And that's why I'm a big advocate of CS, but I'm a huge advocate of CS with that kind of view of it, as opposed to trying to put some structure around something that is 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 fantastic because there isn't a structure around it you know and it lets the the individual breathe and 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 be themselves and sort of try different things and yeah that's kind of how i got into it and i'm i fundamentally believe in that as a kind of a principle of how i try and train my teams and how i try and develop my own teams in that regard and i've seen you do podcasts before where you've talked about kind of how to build a team and kind of the components of that but when in your career was the first time someone used this term customer success and kind of drew it on an org chart and said, this is customer success, you know, because yeah, to me, yeah. I can't remember when that happened, to be quite honest. I'm trying to think back. That's a really, again, a good question. I think the first time it, it was it was mandated is probably the best way I can put it by somebody was at Brandwatch. And I remember when I when I went to join Brandwatch, it was very explicitly customer success. It was a customer success leader. It wasn't client services, which it was, as you recall, at, at Bizarre Voice. I think it finished a kind of client services and, and then moved from community management to client services from account. It was kind of all of that sort of switcheroo. But I think it was Brandwatch that I first kind of went into a role where that was explicit. I think it was probably 2006, maybe uh, a bit later, probably around the, the early 2000s was when you saw it externally in the market. So, uh, you know, to your point about recruiters coming at you, it was around that period that I remember seeing this kind of title start to take some prominence. And it wasn't about client relationship or account management or community management. It was very explicitly customer success. Yeah, that was probably it. As you say, you know, it, it, can, it can be slightly amorphous, customer success. Yep. The blueprint of when you get to an organization, you take a look at it. And, I'm, you know, most people listening to this will be on the A to B, B to C type journey. How do you take stock of that? You know, so you mentioned a couple of different things that can be in the mix there. But, you know, how do you look at it and think, OK, this is kind of what I think we need for the maturity, the scale, the, what we're selling? What is the blueprint? Is there an easy way to do this? Yeah. The, again, it's something that I'm, I'm always reluctant to... To say it's there's a fixed way of looking at things because again I I will always advocate for that sort of like local knowledge if you want to call it that it's like it's like when you buy property there's a there's a reason why investment property is more successful for people based on how close the purchase is and and, and it's kind of a known fact that if if you buy close to the area that you know you'll probably buy better and you'll probably do better because you just understand it and I think I, I apply the same with customer success you know you know your business you may not know the answers you may not know the the theory but you know your business I use the phrase that Paul O'Connell said about the the Irish rugby coach the last guy Joe Smith. He used to say, like, you play the ball in front of you. That's your that's the fundamental principle. Play what's in front of you. Don't worry about the next phase. You play that. And I've always applied that kind of theory when I come to an organization because it's very easy to come in with sort of notions around what you've done in the past, particularly in CS. And I'm, I'm applying this to CS specifically. But when I think about the journey, you know, I think about 
a couple of things very explicitly. The first thing I want to see is the purpose, the vision. I want to see what it is. And I'll ask 10 people, usually at the exec level, tell me what customer success means to you. And 95% of the time, I get a different answer from everybody. Okay, that gives me a good sense of where we're at. It doesn't mean that the intent's not there. It doesn't mean that the willingness is not there. It just means that nobody really knows. Once you kind of get to that point, I know where to start. And, and I, again, I, I always start with that because any change management transformation exercise has to start with a purpose. You've got to take people with you. You've got to show them the North Star. And it has to be real and it has to be connected to the purpose of the overall company. That's the other side that you've got to be careful of. I see a lot of CS charters being very independent of the company goals. And that's where you see, and I mean, you've probably seen it a million times, Andy, that's where you see the silos kick in. It's like, well, hang on a sec, how is this attached to a booking number? Because it has to attach to a booking number. We could be precious about it, but at the end of the day, if we're not selling, then all the charters in the world are pointless, right? So I'm a big sort of believer in starting there and, and understanding what people's understanding of it are, and then really deeply understanding what the goals of the company are and, and where maybe it's not clear, which you know happens, finding something to attach those two things together. Because it's very important as you sort of kick off in CS to make it very clear that we're not here to be the police. We're not here to be, you know, put up guardrails. We are here to support the development of the business, but we're here to do it in a way that benefits our customers and makes our customers better. And that the evolution of the business and the development of the business is a, a lagging indicator of doing the, the former properly. And then I start to look at some of the areas that, that we can link these things together. So obviously, once I have the purpose in place, I start to think about the crawl, walk, run, if you like, kind of simple model of like how you want to develop stuff. Because I believe in foundations and you build on foundations and I'm obsessive about it. And to be honest, sometimes to my own detriment in terms of the speed and the sophistication that I work at, because I want to be able to pressure test everything. I want to be able to go to you, Andy, or you, Paul, and say, here's a wonderful presentation about the CS org at GoCardless. Now go ask anybody in my org and they'll say the same thing. Go pressure test in Salesforce if those metrics are there, the ones that I said they were, and they will be there. I don't like anything that doesn't feel real because then you start to sort of, it cracks a little bit. But I will look at areas such as, you know, the engagement type is one of the big ones. Is it reactive? Is it proactive? How much on that scale does it look and, and what the component parts of that are? There's some other fundamentals around, you know, tribal knowledge versus knowledge at scale, ad hoc outcomes versus sort of, you know, structured engagement how siloed are the objectives. So there's a blueprint, as you put it, it's a good way to, to put it actually, but I think about it in terms of pathways. There are multiple pathways from point A to point Z, and there are multiple ways to get there. And it's up to me to figure out like, do I really care about NPS or do I care about upsell? And not trying to do everything because it looks yeah. good, but do the right things for the right time and then evolve from that. So that's very much how I look at the, the structure of CS, but it does start with that kind of, you know, tell me what you think it is and how disparate that is, depending on who I speak to, it tells me the kind of job I have ahead of me. That's really interesting. No, that's very interesting. Also, what was your first step up into leadership, proper leadership, you know, managing a team? What was that like for you? You know, the first time you went from individual contributor to leader, Yeah. what kind of scar tissue have you got from that? Because I know yeah. now if I look at things you put on LinkedIn, et cetera, you seem very passionate about leadership and developing your team and making sure you're the leader that they want you to be, et cetera. Yeah. What's that journey been like in terms of becoming a leader? It's a really good question. And I think, again, it's a very underserved journey in many organizations in terms of really understanding, I guess, the impact it can have on some uh, on the immediate team and, and beyond. My, my first journey into leadership was at Bizarre Voice, actually. I became a leader of the team I was in. So I went from a a peer to a, to a leader. I don't think I gave it enough 
genuinely, I, I don't think I appreciated enough the transition that that was. And again, I learned a lot from it. And, and I think, you know, some of the, the core aspects of that were around how do you rebrand yourself? Because no matter what way you look at it, you, you have to rebrand yourself from becoming an IC to a leader. Like there's no way you can't take a step back and say, I can't be the Pat that I was yesterday. The question is, what kind of Pat do I need to be to be credible, to retain trust, to set boundaries, to develop people and to have people look at me as, yeah, of course, of course it's him. And I say it to my, my folks all the time, like whenever we talk about promotion, the first question I'll ask them is, if you tell your team that you're promoting this individual, what's their reaction going to be? And I want the team to go, yeah, of course. I wish it was me, or maybe it should be me, but I get that too. And I think that, that was the biggest lesson I learned initially. And I do a lot of, I call it sort of coaching moments. And I, I know it sounds grandiose and whatever, it's, it's not. But, but in my mind, I, I keep kind of trying to get these terms out there that you know, when I see leaders and when I see young leaders particularly, and I see just things that don't sit right with me and feel right with me, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to just say, take them aside for two seconds at the time I see it and say, look, this is what that looked like. Just as an FYI, like, how did that kind of feel to you? How would you do that differently? And I think that's, that's born out of the fact that since I became a leader, I've obsessed about psychological safety. And I still do. I don't overcomplicate this stuff. Like, I try to be myself as much as I can. But I understand that I have to make sure that I create an environment where people are safe, not safe in the context of under delivery or underperformance, but safe in the context of having conversations that are uncomfortable and knowing that whether it's to me or from me, it's not going to be career limiting. It's not going to damage our relationship, but it has to be had. And that's kind of was born, I guess, out of that first step into leadership, because I had no other way to do that because these people were my friends. They were people that I was in the trenches with, and you, you would know many of them, actually, uh, Andy. And, you know, there was no point in trying to come in the next day and be this big kind of, oh, look at me, I have all the answers, because they, they would laugh at me. I mean, literally, the people, again, I think about people like, you know, Alex Simpson and Kate Musgrove and, you know, people like that, like, they would laugh at me if I tried to do that. So I, I kind of threw myself into that. But, but the key, and, and I tell everybody, like, stop worrying about what you can do for your team as a leader first time around. Start understanding who you are what you are, where your gaps are, and start to be very transparent about that first time around. Then worry about your team, because most, most young leaders are never taught like that you're not expected to have the answers. It's okay to fail multiple times in this, in this part of your career, but just don't, don't bullshit people. Like, don't, don't pretend like you're something you're not, because that's where you lose trust, and then you'll fail as a leader. And that's never changed. <laughs> I've been, you know, 20 years later, it still, it still works. It's still the philosophy I work with. Yeah. But I guess at my age, I'm just more comfortable now to look stupid. So I don't, yeah, I, I don't, I, it doesn't bother me anymore as much maybe as it would in the past. But, but yeah, that was the first step in and I've loved it ever since. I've loved it. Um, I've loved it. I just love being in a position where you can actually make a decision that can sort of impact people and, you know, positively and, and challenge them and, and give them the confidence that this is going to be crap for six months. Like uh, we have a, a, a new hire, you know, recently and had a really honest conversation with them about imposter syndrome. And I've thrived in my career because I, I have enormous amounts of imposter syndrome, always had in my career. But I've always seen that as a positive because it's always kept me ahead of the game. It's always kept me sharp. It's always made me think, never get lazy, never get slack. But I, I feel it's also important to understand for me as a leader and for every other leader that other people will have it too, but they might react to it very differently. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, the, the safety of having those kind of conversations is, is what I learned, I guess, early doors, you know. How long have you been at Go Cardless for now? 
coming up to two years, believe it or not, next month. Yeah, yeah. two years. How's it changed the the team there, you know, when you arrive versus where you are now? Because you guys are on a, a big growth story. So it must have been a lot of evolution. I'm just, if you kind Still of... Still is. <laughs> <laughs> unpick yeah, pivotal yeah. moments in that, as you talked about building a team. What are the key things? When I think about customer success at Go Carlos, it's probably the first situation I've had where I would say I've developed a very, I had developed a very good skill of coming into or being part of organizations that were, you know, somewhat mature in terms of at minimum account management or, you know, aware of, of things like churn, of, of retention, of, of elements like that. And, and in some cases, sort of resolving issues in those kind of companies. I, 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 similar to, the, the, I guess, the work you're doing now as an operating partner, you kind of go in and you, you just know where to point your, your sort of your focus and you kind of know you tweak this, you tweak that, and things will, will, will kind of go in the right track. But when I came to go cardless, I mean, I explicitly took the opportunity because it scared the crap out of me, quite frankly. It was a, it was a different industry. It was a super smart, uh, you know, group of people in the area that I knew nothing about, at least in, in MarTech. It didn't matter how clever anyone was. I kind of knew Martech and I could I could blag my way through it. But now I'm kind of fully exposed here. And the customer structure was was quite disparate because Go Cardless was kind of and to some degree elements of it are still very much in a B2C sort of mode when it comes to customer success or customer service. Insofar as the support team was very advanced, it was very reactive because it had to be and very mature. And then the rest of the org was very immature from an evolution point of view. We had some CSMs, we had some onboarding, we had some you know, different functions there. So I think Hiroki and Carlos at the time were, were just phenomenally uh, ahead of their time in acknowledging that, you know, look, we need to do this now. We need to do something pretty drastic. And, you know, for some reason, they felt that, you know, I, I was the person who could help them do that. And that was kind of the first pivotal moment, I think, that kind of got me across the line of go cardless and said, OK, hang on, these these folks, they're willing to take a big punt here. This is not an evolution. This is a, wow, you know, we go from this yesterday to this tomorrow and, and let's just push forward. And I think since I kind of came on board, we've built out a pretty kind of significant model now where the organization has... I'd like to think a lot of credibility as a customer success group in a, in a relatively short space of time because, you know, I talked about my blueprint, as you, as you called it, but, you know, a huge part of that was bringing the folks that were there on board with that blueprint. And I think the first kind of the, the next pivotal moment for me was when we first went out with the purpose and the vision to the customer success group as a whole, because up to that, it was a it was a concept. It was like an email from Hiroki saying, hey, Pat's the new CCO and you're all reporting to him. But that's all it was, right? But when we went out with that, and I remember even the evolution of the purpose and the vision and the leadership team, you know, in the room, and you know, it, it, you have to back yourself because you're coming in with this idea and concept that you know took a bit of time to land. You know, it's like, well, hang on, we've been doing this for a while now, and we're doing okay. We're doing very well, actually. So why change things? But luckily, the team bought into it, and I think that for me was a trigger point when I saw just people being able to connect to that. And the little bit of swagger, which I look for, started to kick in. You know, it's like, actually, you know, we are part of this group. We are part of something that, that is ours and it's ours to own and it's ours to shape and be responsible for. And then as we kind of evolved, you know, we rolled out various you know, significant things that, that are having and will continue to have a, a huge impact to the customers. So, you know, we, we got super clear about our customer journey. But we basically have that underpinning every kind of activity that we do. So it's really tightly linked together. There's no stragglers. There's no elements or of the process that, that goes off in tangents. And, you know, as you sort of implemented these things in stages, 
the level of change management just becomes less and less because it's understood. And, and that goes back to my point about building blocks. You know, one of the things I have to be super careful of is how fast versus how slow I run with these things. And, you know, assessing the maturity of an organization has a huge part to play in it. Like the things we've done in two weeks now that would have taken four months, two years ago. So, you know, that's really critical in terms of the pivot points that I've seen there. And, and you know, and, and really it was just the small things like, you know, people using the terminology I use. And, and I always love that. I love when you start to hear that, you start to hear people using consistent terminology like customer first or value pathway or the success packages that we've just launched. Like, and, and it just feels like it's a, it's a language now that's understood. And that's the key step. You can do a lot when you've got that. You can go off in different tangents and the team trusts you, hopefully, I think. So yeah, they were the key points. But I think underpinning all of that was the real commitment from Hiroki, particularly in the function. You know, he's, he's a brilliant guy. And I'm not saying that to, <laughs> to blow smoke here. I, I truly do think he is. And, and I've learned a ton from him. But more than anything, I've just really appreciated his, um, you know, consistent challenge of the group. Because if he wasn't, then he wouldn't really be interested. That would be more concerning. But more than anything, his belief that, you know, we have to, we have to do this. If we're going to be a world-class organization, we have to do this. So, yeah, there's been multiple elements, but they're the main ones. And you've got a C-title, okay? So yep. that interaction between the rest of the C-suite and you, did they tell you what they needed from you in terms of health metrics and reporting? Or did that evolve over time as well? And, and linked to this is, you know, you've done... HR tech, you've done MarTech, and now you're kind of in a fintech world. Are they similar? Are they very different? You know, I'm just curious kind of what the differences ended up being. So to answer your first question, I would say no. There wasn't an expectation in terms of what the initial KPIs were going to be, because we were, we're like, bear in mind, Andy, we were very early on the enterprise journey, on the, the committed revenue sort of ACV journey at the time. You know, up to that point, it's, it, it was a very consumption-based business. So, you know, traditional concepts such as revenue retention rates were very much in the mode of, as I say, the way Amazon, for example, would use the, the term churn or retention rather than an enterprise kind of B2B SaaS. So that's evolving over time. And it literally is evolving over time as we've had these discussions and we're starting to get comfortable with the, the net revenue retention construct, you know, quarterly, yearly churn what it actually means from a logo and a revenue perspective. But they have been very consistent. They are super consistent. I think the challenge is, is not the consistency of the KPIs as it relates to customer success. It's the understanding of those KPIs outside of the world of customer success. And I think that's one thing that I've always advised you know, lots of people, including myself, to remember that we live this. So many other people don't. So when I talk about logo retention versus revenue retention, net versus gross, it's interpreted in many, many different ways. The fact that there will always be churn is a huge one that I've had many a heated conversation about. It's like, why is there churn? Well, there will always be churn in, in B2B SaaS at the levels that I've worked at because it's just natural. You know, customers go out of business. Customers lose interest. Customers buy and then decide they don't want to renew. It's not about will there be no churn. It's how do we control it? How do we minimize it? And how do we make sure that the expansion of the customers that are being successful more than mitigates that churn? And I think that's been a really fascinating journey for me because I've had that discussion a lot. And the thing is, I, I never take it personally. And I, I think in my world, you can't, you have to educate. And I don't mean this to sound patronizing. Like my job is to communicate, it's to educate, it's to make people aware, particularly as you go on this enterprise B2B SaaS journey, that there are certain rhythms that will never change. You know, there are certain things that will happen. And in my job is to predict those things and to get the business ready for those things. And as I said, to support in whatever the business needs us to do to grow 
so that these things become, you know, not massively significant, as it were, just more operating kind of elements. But that's been an interesting journey for me. And they're the core kind of four or five metrics that I'll always sort of lock on. And everything else around that, I tend to sort of, you know, I'll take them or leave them. If they're in the business, they're there. If they're not, they're not. But I think it's important that at least the exec team align around the understanding of what these metrics mean and uh, not get into panic mode when, you know, one quarter, it might be lower than expected when the next quarter is looking better than expected. It's a, it's a peak and trough kind of game sometimes. So you've got the CCO title now. As you've talked about the evolution then from, I think you called it support through customer success through to yeah. CCO. What do you think is next in this journey in terms of the maturing of the business? And I say that just because we've done these podcasts now talking about different go-to-market motions. And I start to see lots of different ways people think about that selling motion, you know, be bottom up, be developer first, be product led growth, you know, different ways to think about it that may not track all of those metrics you've talked about. I'm just wondering, do you think CS will evolve in time? Kind of which directions do you think it could go now as a function? Yeah, it's a really interesting one again, because there's so many, so many modes of customer success. If you think about it from a more commercially oriented mode to a more strategic mode to a more technical mode to a more support mode like this, there's so many elements to it. And, and, you know, fundamentally, it'll always be driven by the product. The product to me is always the start point of what kind of customer success or you're trying to build because it's just going to determine the type of profile, the type of people and the type of organization that you're going to develop. Personally, I'm a huge believer in separation of responsibility when it comes to however customer success evolves. I think when I look at the evolution originally, it was, I, I think Rav Dalywal at, at um, X Slack, he, he talks about it as the everything department. And it was, it was, it's a good phrase for it. You know, it started out as that. So as an account manager, you're given a 200K upsell target and, you, oh, by the way, can you please retain your portfolio of 40 customers as well and deal with lots of their support tickets? I'm trying to, I'm trying to move it into a world where we have real specificity of activity is the way I kind of put it. Like, so if you're a retention person, you retain, right? Your job is to make sure that the administration, the process around that is there and it works. If you're a CSM, your job is adoption. Your job is to identify pipeline and nurture that pipeline. If you're an AM, it's about closing that pipeline. You know, right down to if you're in operations, your job is to support the business to be able to make smarter decisions. So I think, I think as the org evolves, it's going to get, I, I hope it starts to go into a mode where there is a lot of clarity around role and responsibility, but it's underpinned with the consistency that is always what is the customer expecting from this relationship. And I think that's the thing that very quickly is lost sight of in many places. And I'm guilty of it too. Like we, you know, we, we talk about KPIs, customers don't care about those. They, they truly don't. And, and the amount of times I've seen orgs, including my own sometimes, trip ourselves up over these metrics without actually thinking, what does this look like externally is, is kind of something that I, I, I'm always thinking about. But I think customer success is here to stay first and foremost. And I'm not even going about the evolution of it. You know, I see a lot of questions and conversations around, you know, what is it? I feel like we're always in justification mode in CS. I'm not because I think that's very distracting and I think it can drive the wrong behaviors and the wrong activities. I'm more interested from a cultural perspective as to how customer success is perceived. And I go back to my point about Hiroki. Hiroki will challenge me on headcount every year as he should, but I don't feel right now that he would ever challenge me in terms of the value that the customer success org brings to the customer. And that's kind of where I start. You know, I think when you go down the rabbit hole of how do you prove the value of one CSM versus a salesperson or a support person, it just gets 
it gets into dangerous territory and, and you get into inside out thinking. And that's the thing I fear the most, quite frankly, uh, because that's where you start going wrong. But I think it's here to stay. I think what I'm always fascinated about is how, how it splits out with the go-to-market. So I'm part of a go-to-market executive at GoCardless. So there's myself, the chief revenue officer and the chief growth officer, and we're part of the go-to-market team. And as I look at the evolution of CS, I see that as a huge opportunity where we are a GTM team first and foremost, of which there is customer success, sales, and growth. And I think the more CS can align ourselves to go to market, rather than sort of trying to prove our own independent value to the organization, the more the function is going to flourish. And most importantly, the more interlinked it's all going to become. So it's not about me or you, it's about that. And I love it. Like I've never enjoyed a job as much as I do right now. I've never been challenged as much as I do right now. And I've honestly never felt like I'm more part of a team as an executive than I am right now as part of that GTM team. And I, I would encourage anybody listening to this to just always kind of lean into these things as opposed to pull away from them. Because I, I, I've done that. I've done that in the past and I've seen it done many times and it just doesn't work. So that, that's kind of where I, I sort of see that motion moving and, and the concept of growth as opposed to retention churn, bookings, you know what I mean? Like it, it, they're just components of that North Star of growth. And I think the more we can go towards that, the, the better we're going to be as a function. Well, you genuinely sound like you're still having fun. So that's good. Oh, absolutely. That's good. Absolutely. So what are you in the kind of hat world? What are you looking at out there? What's inspiring you right now? Are there companies? Are there people? Are there things that you follow either from a leadership, personal development, hobbies? You know, what's the thing that drives you? Yeah, that's a good one. So in terms of, I mean, in terms of, I love SaaS. I'm always obsessed with SaaS. The thing, the thing that I'm thinking a huge about at the moment, and we are as a business as well, is this, I, I'm really interested in product-led growth. And I, I'm interested in it conceptually, not necessarily specifically in terms of how it relates to Go Cardless or how it relates to anywhere else. I'm interested in how that concept can be applied in, in so many different ways. So a good example is, you know, we've recently launched our advocacy strategy at Go Cardless, and we're applying a PLG lens to that that concept of that kind of growth loop that our chief growth officer talks about a lot, which I, I really love that sort of, it's a self-perpetuating motion. And we're applying that to case studies right now. So for example, you know, you start at the onboarding point, you get customers, you know, with the right expectation that they're going to be part of this exercise. They do the case study. Other people see that case study. They want to do one. It starts again and it's it's kind of in theory perpetuates on itself. That's something that, that I'm really fascinated by. And you know, how we apply that to even the enterprise motion is the other side to it. You know, it's it's not it's not independent of enterprise selling, right? And if you look at companies like I guess App Dynamics, I, I heard a great podcast with A16Z around app dynamics and like how they apply PLG and freemium to their enterprise selling motion. And it's really, really fascinating the combination of those two things. And I think the other aspect that I'll always be obsessed about is, is leadership. And by that, I mean just really trying where I possibly can to learn as much as I possibly can about what I can bring to the table to make the people at GoCardless and the people in my team feel, you know, in 10 years time, like this was a really pivotal moment in their career. I always use the analogy, like if my, you know, head of onboarding was in a pub in 10 years time and he was talking about me, like, what would I want him to say if I wasn't in the room? And I think that's something that genuinely you know, has my brain buzzing constantly because the war for talent is so huge right now. The cultural aspect of a business is something that people are just so obsessed with. And so they should be. If I look at my career, the biggest single impact in my entire career has been the culture of the organization that I've joined. It hasn't been 
the learning or the development or the product or the it's played a part in it but the culture and being able to be part of a culture that acknowledged that I was good at something and gave me a shot at it was just critical you know and I think I would I, I'm always kind of trying to figure out like how do I create that culture here so that when people sort of leave here that they feel like they were part of that and as you say Andy so accurately just making sure that the mistakes that I've made are great learning opportunities for other people in the way that I wish to some degree, sometimes when I was 21 or two, somebody would have kind of put their arm around me and said, hey, listen, this is not going to work. Here's why. <laughs> and maybe, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I wouldn't change things, but I think it's important because it has a massive impact, you know. So they're, they're the kind of key areas for me right now. And, and the last bit is around just customer success generally. I'm fascinated with how that's going to evolve in terms of different segments, different requirements by CSMs. I feel like at the moment, there's a lot of thought leadership out there in CS that's solely focused on leaders and that's solely focused on the top end of the business as opposed to the people in the front line. And going back to your point about who trained me and what training did I have, that's something that I'm really passionate about because I think there's a big opportunity to coach and to guide and to give framework from experience for all of us to, to CSMs that are in the field right now and develop those kind of leaders of the future. But do it in a way that makes it fun and you know evolves the, the profession. Pat, I knew you would be a great guest. Thank you. Genuinely, it, it's fascinating. It's a lot, of, a lot of rambling, but I always enjoy having a chat, as you know. I know, I know. But listen, I, I, <laughs> I, think, I genuinely think people are going to get a lot, of, a lot out of this and it's, it's going to be a popular podcast. But let's put it in the diary for 10 years from now. Let's get a company yes. team to come on. And we'll see what they say about you. Absolutely. Yeah? <laughs> I'll definitely. I got I to gotta drink my own Kool-Aid there. I got to be ready for whatever comes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat, thank you again for being such a great guest. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, Andy. And uh, lovely to chat as always. It always uh, brings back very fond memories of our time together. Right? That was a very pivotal point in my career. So always happy to help. Thank you, Pat. And you brought the sun back to London. But there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>